Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Harty School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about cybersecurity. It's the age of the cyber attack, according to The Guardian. Since 2019, ransomware has increased by 158% in North America, says a recent Sonic Wall cyber threat report. At the NATO summit this month, Alliance members reaffirmed that a cyber attack can trigger Article 5. As the scale and the nature of cyber threats are changing, I called Tara Wheeler, one of America's leading cybersecurity experts, who is currently a cyber project fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Her research focuses on information security and international conflict. She also has impressive field experience as the former website cybersecurity czar at Symantec and project leader at Microsoft Game Studios. Tara and I discuss the difference between cyber espionage and cyber war, whether deterrence can work in cyberspace, what the cyber future of warfare will look like, and what that entails for military planning and procurement. Now, I'm excited to welcome Tara Wheeler as our June guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Tara. It is lovely to be here. How are you doing today, Katharina? I'm great. How are you? It's uh, it's a hot day, oddly enough, here in Seattle, Washington. So we're seeing folks outside on beaches and uh, really enjoying the summer weather. Well, you're not just a cybersecurity expert. You're also a poker player. And I'm curious, what's on your mind when you head into a big game? Well, I think about poker as a mental workout. I think poker and cybersecurity have so much in common because as much as we like to focus on kind of those big moments, those crazy hacks, the global events, the truth is that poker and cybersecurity are both just accumulations over time of a lot of tiny, often boring decisions. And a lot of what happens in poker and cybersecurity that matters is what you choose not to do. So I like to think of it as feeding into a good decision-making process for the other stuff I do in my life. <laughs> That sounds less glamorous than I thought. But then again, I have never played poker in my life. Um, this is the Berlin Security Beat. And I always like to ask, what song best describes the current state of the world? I remember you asked me this question and said, think about what you would want to say. And I remember sitting there and just kind of being blown away for a moment. Do I want to go with Depeche Mode? Do I want to go with Iron Maiden? And then I realized that the David Draymond cover of Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel is probably the best one at the moment. There's a lot of people in this world shouting, but very few of them are listening and hearing what other people have to say. And that leads to a discordance instead of music. And so I probably want to use that song to describe how the world is working right at the moment, as well as just thinking about how there's a possibility for beauty, even in mourning the loss of that communication that we have with each other. Earlier this month, so June 2021, a cyber attack hit the world's largest meat supplier, JBS, forcing it to shut down some of its operations in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. And a few weeks earlier, the U.S. oil pipeline Colonial had been hit with a cyber attack, causing fuel shortages and rising fuel prices. 
Are we seeing a trend of attacks on critical infrastructure? And how vulnerable are the United States and its European allies? Well, the trend has been there for some time. The middle of 2016 really is when this started to become a tactic that was used against vulnerable companies. And we saw the two biggest really attention-getting attacks in 2017 of NotPetya and WannaCry. So for those of us in the industry, this isn't a trend. This isn't new. This is just the world waking up to what we knew starting on May 12, 2017, right, which is that this is coming and it's going for the soft underbelly of critical infrastructure, the places where we never thought we would need to have this kind of cybersecurity protection. And is this trend going to continue? Absolutely. Right now, governments are not getting the incentives right in terms of either banning or providing tax deductions for payments or providing the necessary support and regulatory climate for businesses to properly handle their cybersecurity. It's not happening right at the moment. You got in the United States, the FBI telling companies they're not permitted to pay ransoms. And then you have the IRS specifying how paying ransoms is tax deductible in the United States. It's very confusing. And if you pick two incentives to pair up to make this problem worse, you couldn't have done a better job. Law enforcement saying no and money saying yes. All right. I wanted to mention another attack. And late last year, news of the so-called SolarWinds breach broke. The hack had penetrated large parts of the U.S. federal government's information technology systems. And policymakers like then-Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin called the attack a Russian declaration of war. You have said that's dangerous. How so? Why are semantics important here? And how is cyber war different from, uh, say, cyber espionage? Well, thanks for the question. This is a conversation we've been having for a while, and it really comes down to the fact that people who call solar winds an act of war don't understand how computers work. Well, all, all due respect to the good senator, this was an act of espionage. It was listening, and it did not change anything on any of those computers. There was no action taken, no deception or destruction on foreign shores. And as a result, because this was solely a listening campaign, it's no different than putting a tap on a wire for a telephone. It's no different than having someone listening at a keyhole in a hotel in the middle of an international diplomatic conference. That is espionage. When you change something on those computers, when you use them to hurt people, then you have moved into the use of computers to conduct warfare. And we need to draw that clear distinction because calling everything that happens in the cyber realm an act of war when it doesn't mean anything to do so, words mean things. Again, thank heaven. <laughs> and it means something when we call something an act of war. And if we call everything an act of war, then nothing is. As Aristotle said, the child of all in a village is the child of none. And we have that same problem of blurring those lines here. This was clearly an act of espionage in the tradition of pre-World War II Russian espionage in our aviation industry by sending people to listen and copy of documents. That's what this was. And it doesn't make it not worthy of response and a strong one, but it was not legally in the United States under Title X an act of war. Speaking of blurring lines, I'm now wondering, can cyber attacks be deterred? Does deterrence work in cyberspace? That is such a fascinating question. I want to refer you very much to Bob Jervis and Jay Healy's work at Columbia right now, where they're doing a really wonderful breakdown of some of the more traditional theories of warfare relating to deterrence. Uh, great power conflict is always going to have that attached deterrence concept with it. The issue I think we're looking at in cyberspace when it comes to ransomware attacks is that right now, 
no deterrence is even being applied. Okay. There's no support for small companies to defend themselves against what is certainly nation state level attacks. For deterrence to work, what would we need? We would need to have a credible return capacity. We would need to have the credibility of a capable response, which we do, and clear rules about what constitutes an act of war and what constitutes an act of espionage and what our response to an act of war would be. Because people who are not embedded in this world, and frankly, because people in my world in cybersecurity haven't done a very good job of honestly, clearly explaining what's going on, what we have right now is a lack of understanding on the global stage of what could constitute an act of war and how the U.S. would respond. If there's no understanding of what could trigger a deterrent act, then there's no such thing as deterrence. If there's no understanding of what the consequences are and at what point they would get triggered, you don't have deterrence. All right. In communication between states, signals play an important role. And I was wondering what this means for the cyberspace. Can cyber activities be a useful tool for signaling or doesn't that apply here? It absolutely applies here. In fact, they're profoundly useful for signaling. I was speaking to a military CISO of a U.S. state who said that for the last five years, there has been no major kinetic attack in the world that was not first preceded by acts of cyber violence, espionage, and using computers to harm civilian populations. And that's, I think, a very strong way to tell what's about to happen. Before we entered into this conversation, I looked at U.S. cyber strategies, and I was wondering if you could talk about how U.S. cyber strategies have evolved from Obama to Trump and what we're seeing under Biden now. Well, it's been complex. Obama was noted for his use of more unconventional kinds of force, whether that be remote-controlled drones, whether attacks in cyberspace. The idea of how the cyber domain has evolved, sorry, to Forgive me over here. I've, I've got a lovely cat trying to chew on everything sitting by me. This is the joy of working <laughs> home. We try to talk about grand strategy, and I'm busy throwing balled up paper at my cat going, get out of here. Uh, the way that this domain has evolved is first from the realm of eggheads over in a corner to a more serious understanding that this could be a support function for the branches of the military, and now over into really what has developed into this fifth battleground, this fifth domain of cyberspace as an actual field of battle, essentially. The difficulty of being somebody who's in cyberspace, and cybersecurity should never be political. Um, technology is inherently political. The things we choose to innovate, the things that we choose to create, who we permit to be called innovators is inherently incredibly political. But cybersecurity should not be. Cybersecurity should be about the use of tools to keep people safe and keeping them updated and planning over time to ensure that adversaries cannot get into machines and into systems that they do not belong in. That's not inherently political act any more than saying it's a political act to post a security guard at a department store overnight and saying, now you can let anyone in who's got red hair, but nobody else, right? That doesn't make any sense. And cybersecurity doesn't operate that way. We're not political. We don't make those kinds of divisions. So when I talk about national security strategies over the course of the last, maybe say 15 years, it's difficult because people want to make it a political act. And in reality, there have been some intelligent moves that the people who worked in the Trump administration made when it came to cybersecurity. Things like stronger and what appeared at the time to be randomized 
responses to Chinese trade issues were often at that time something that was credibly only able to be done by an administration that appeared to be willing to carry out potentially nonsensical threats. There were some interesting moves there that social scientists like me got a chance to really analyze. Now, over the course of the last six months, as we started to watch the Biden cybersecurity strategy develop, we're seeing that there is a real cohesive and an integrated understanding of how national security is impacted by cybersecurity. And a lot of it, I think, is thanks to the work in the Trump administration of Chris Krebs and the Critical Infrastructure and Security Agency under DHS. So there have been some good and problematic moves over the last 15 years, and we're seeing cyberspace being taken seriously. On that note, the European Union now wants to launch a new cyber unit. And at the NATO summit earlier this month, alliance members reaffirmed that a cyber attack can trigger Article 5, and the decision would be taken on a case-to-case basis. How would you say all these different strategies go together, and what does it mean for the alliance? So the announcement that Article 5 could be triggered by a cyber attack is, in fact, not new. Uh, There were discussions on this in 2018 and 2019, and I believe the Secretary General of NATO had at the time mentioned that this was possible. I believe that there was an attempt to give it more prominence and more understanding at this recent NATO summit, and I think it worked because people are busy covering it as if Article 5 was not able to be triggered by a cyber attack until now, which has not been the case. But I'm glad that this pronouncement, this attention being brought to it has happened. I think this is calling attention to the fact that cyber attacks are just a label that we give to hurting civilian populations while bypassing military installations. And I think we need to be very clear about what we mean. This is a new environment for many people who have very conventional ways of conceiving of warfare. And for a generation of people who are running conflict in this world, who grew up in the Cold War, who are used to thinking of nuclear war as the worst that can happen and anything else other than that as not really as bad, I think they're not used also to the fact that they're being bypassed. Countries that are engaging in nation state level attacks, Russia, North Korea, Iran versus other countries are bypassing military installations and going straight for raiding the civilian populations of other countries. And so there's a feeling, I think, that if we give too much prominence to this, that we'd have to acknowledge that militaries have up to this point not done a very good job of being efficacious in the defense of their own civilian populations against nation state level cyber attacks. None of them have. You write the future of war is cyber war. And I was wondering What does that entail for military planning, for procurement? Maybe you can go into the details of that. Well, I just wrote an article about a month ago with Bruce Schneier at Brookings. I'm at Brookings and we're both at Harvard and had a chance to have this conversation about what the future of cyber war will look like on a technical basis. I think what surprises most people is that the future of war is not going to be about the kinds of crazy attacks that many people thought of in military games and planning over the last five or six decades. It's going to look a lot more like planning around the things that will stop working. For example? Uh, for example, it's not that you're going to see electronic and networked targeting systems on guns magically somehow be able to track and trace a person through the air and fire at, you know, relevant political figures. It's that they'll just stop working. They'll get bricked. 
we're not going to see that self-driving cars or cars with heads-up displays are going to, or Jeeps or military vehicles are going to start running over populations or crash through gates at military bases. It's that they're just going to sort of fall off the side of the road and tilt over and then rust there in the sun and in the wet. We're going to see things that stop working. It's not going to be that we're able to break everyone's communications. It's that we're going to find communications just don't work anymore. So that's the thing that I think we're seeing a good example, an initial example of what we're talking about here happened in 2018 with the NATO Trident Juncture exercise where Russia jammed the GPS units. This happened in real life. This wasn't a game. It happened during a NATO game. But Russia jammed the GPS units of ships and participating military equipment, making it impossible for them to talk to each other. It's not that somehow magically people started saying different things or that deep fakes began giving orders. It's that stuff stopped working. That's what the future of cyber war is going to look like. And we need to start realizing that, interestingly enough, pre-nuclear conventional tactics are going to start to become important again when it comes to things like maintaining supply and communication lines and logistics. So troop transport. It's going to be a fascinating world that we're going to live in over the next 50 years. And when I say fascinating, I do mean we're about to live in some interesting times. <laughs> So how do we respond to that? What do we need in terms of procurement? Procurement is one of the challenges that every country has at the moment is that everyone wants to slap some internet on it and add it to the internet of things. So when it comes to procurement for militaries, it's incredibly important to have and stand by and require the kinds of deep cybersecurity audits of processes and products that you're purchasing in order to make sure that you're not buying something that 18 months from now is going to be defunct or so unpatched, so behind in its updates that you can't trust it on the battlefield. So that I think is the key for most procurement processes is you need to have those processes. And if you have an audit process, abide by it. It's not a reason to be exceptional. And you've got to have the ability to check on whether or not your equipment that you're purchasing is patchable and upgradable. We're already right in the middle of policy implications. I read, for example, that you have called for digital Geneva conventions. That was, I think, in 2018. Have we made strides in that area? What needs to be done? So I've been stuck with that headline for a while. I actually specifically said we already have Geneva conventions for the digital realm. We need to abide by them. Aha. Yes. It's the kind of thing that after a while starts to get conflated with each other. The problem I think we have is that we think somehow computers are magical, that they exist in a different realm, a different space, a different time. In reality, we have computers. They're already here. This isn't like everyone around us is busily deploying mustard gas all over the place and we need to have a new convention for that. The idea with new conventions is to limit the supply of something. There's no limiting the supply of cyberspace at this point. That ship sailed a long time ago and it floated in the middle of the Atlantic during the middle of the NotPetya attack, right? So we are already in a situation where we are surrounded by cyberspace. We already know, we already have names for the crimes that countries can commit against each other and that people can commit against each other. We don't need to call it cybercrime when someone steals a grandma's retirement. We already have a name for that. It's called fraud. We don't need a new name for a Geneva Convention that focuses on cyberspace because we already have a name for it. When someone engages in deception and destruction on foreign shores, when someone attacks a civilian population, when someone targets and destroys water treatment supplies, when airports go down, 
We already have names for these crimes. We don't need new ones. We need the people who are in power to comprehend that computers are sand that we have tricked into thinking and they're just sitting around us everywhere. We're already surrounded by cyberspace and we already have names for the crimes. Now we need people tough enough to say, this is an act of war and here's why. This is a crime and here's why. This is something that is not beyond the reach of people to understand. You can commit a crime with a computer, but that doesn't make it somehow more or less a crime. We already have a name for it. So I think that's the the challenge that I often have with this. I absolutely want the world to abide by the Geneva Conventions when it comes to the digital realm and in cyberspace, but we already have the tools for it. Last question. Summer's here, and I'm still in need of some cyber beach reads. What would you recommend? Cyber beach reads? Um. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. We're pretending for a moment that people would actually read scientific articles on the beach. Doesn't everybody read scientific articles on the beach? Otherwise, you've got to read them in your house, and it's kind of depressing. <laughs> you look at the waves, you look around at the people playing on the beach. That's the moment to really process something deep and intellectual. Yeah. Um, I would actually recommend there's an article, it's called Privacy Harms. And while it is not specific to the international conflict element of cybersecurity, one of the things it does is it goes through and describes and discusses how data breaches are so difficult to compensate people for. And part of the reason for that is American law requires that an addressable harm be done before a person has what we call standing to pursue a case, to be compensated, to get justice. And that article is a really wonderful one. And I'm looking now at conversations around how we can have a similar idea in cybersecurity that networks having been breached is an incredibly difficult thing to address in a court of law because you often have a difficult time describing the standing you might have for suing someone or for requesting that your government engage in negotiations to handle it because it's often very difficult to provide the exact amount of the harm that you have experienced. Mm -hmm. So that article is a really great one for people, I think. All right. Thank you very much for doing this. It was a genuine pleasure, Katerina. I am enjoying this and I love the conversation. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. 